0: I know Mike already did it, but it's my favorite part, and I only get to preach once a year or so, so I love you! Yeah, buddy. <laughs> uh Not all of you know me. Uh, the church and this service has kind of doubled in size since last year, uh, thanks to corona. We have a lot of... Uh, I heard the phrase out there, I'd never heard it till just now, uh, corona refugees, people who've come from other churches. So we're glad you're here, we love you, we're glad that you found somewhere that's still worshiping. Um, I'm Brandon, I'm the associate pastor here, I have a couple different responsibilities. um, One of which is keeping in contact with our newer people, saying hi, you know, we're glad you're here, send you guys notes, send you guys... Text messages, invite you to things, stuff like that. And the other responsibility I have is I lead our evangelism internship, which this is totally a shameless plug, has nothing to do with the sermon, but we want you for the evangelism internship. Uh, whether you're—I mean, we've had a 14-year-old girl do it, and then we've had guys and women in their 70s and 80s do the evangelism internship. So it's totally awesome. We teach you how to share your faith by actually— Bringing you along with us as we share our faith So if that's something you're interested in make sure you put that on the back of your card I'll call you even if you're just kind of interested and you don't really know usually what ends up happening is the intern will come along Uh for a couple weeks, you know listen and then they'll say this actually isn't as hard as I anticipated it being and then they because of the boldness they see in the mentor's They will become bold and then share their faith as well. And I know for Christians, we all, uh, any of us who are Christians, have that tug. We always want to share our faith, and we may not know how, or the enemy tries to keep us silenced or whatever. And our goal with the internship is to break that. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And you are so kind to us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy uh, that while I was sinning, you died for me. Thank you that while I was your enemy, um, you brought me uh, into your family and you reconciled me along with my brothers and sisters here in the church. Lord, thank you for the new covenant uh, that you've given us a new heart, a new mind, a new family in the church, a new father yourself. Thank you, God, that you said you will never leave nor forsake us. Thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness. Lord, I ask for help. Um, You know how weak I am, and I really need help to give this sermon, and we need help to understand uh, what your word says. Um, So, Lord, I ask that you would prevent any lies, any untruth from going out from my lips, Uh, protect our ears from any untruths. Uh, that I might say, or the enemy might say, uh, Lord, may we hear and understand truth. Amen. So a couple years ago, when I started working here, uh, I got to, D asked me to preach, and I said, sure, and I gave my testimony, and I'm going to give the short, condensed version of it now, partly because we have so many new people who don't know me, um, but also because it ties into the sermon, and you'll see how in just a few minutes. So I grew up in um, meth houses in California. I was a crack baby. Um, my mom did meth when she was pregnant. Uh, my dad was a heroin junkie, uh, walked out on us when we were about two years old, or when I was two years old. And um, we bounced around from meth house to meth house, sleeping on the floor, sleeping in uh, some pretty ridiculous uh, circumstances. And growing up in that Um, environment, I grew very hateful, very spiteful, very angry. Um, I was especially mad at people who had things, you know, whether they had their parents or whether they had clothes that didn't stink. Our washer and dryer almost never worked, so I'd go to school with moldy clothes and um, animal matter on my backpack and stuff like that, you know, just really gross things. And so I was mad at anyone who had something more than what I had. And I was always mad at Christians. I hated Christians. You know, they told me about this God who was loving and kind, and I'd say, that's bogus. Um, that's a bunch of hokey, you know, like, look at what I'm living through. Uh, I don't think there's a God that loves me at all. Um, and so I rejected Christianity. I called it fairy tales, and I was, I was not nice at all about it. Um, and I ended up around, well— From the time I was eight till about 15, so eight years old, I started smoking weed, drinking, hooked on porn, stealing, fighting, all sorts of stuff. I fist fought my third grade teacher, Miss Woods. I feel really bad about that still. Um, I didn't win, so there's that. Um, And, yeah, I ended up being invited to a Christian youth group similar to the one we have here. And I was blown away at how loving and kind these christians were um, i was it was totally paradoxical or opposite i guess of what i had experienced growing up you know um people abandoning me people using me all sorts of stuff like that and then i come to these christians and they you know i'm stressed out about not having books and they give me books for school or they give me uh, binders backpacks shoes etc and i was really grateful for that and i was grateful for their love towards me but that doesn't change. That doesn't make Christianity true. I still thought it was fairy tales. I still thought it was a bunch of lies. And, but I kept going, um, just because I loved the people. And I knew that they loved me, uh, even if they were wrong about Christianity. And so, I heard the pastor, the youth pastor, say multiple times, uh, if Christianity is untrue, no one should be a Christian. If Christianity is true, everybody should be a Christian. And it's your job, Brandon Youth Group, to find out. And so I said, well, I can I can hang with that. That makes a lot of sense. Because what I'd heard up until that point was, believe because I'm telling you. Believe because if you don't, you go to hell. Believe because you have to, you know, to fit into our little circle. So I agreed. I, I thought, you know, that is intellectually stimulating, I'm going to find out if Christianity is true or untrue. So I joined a Bible study at 15, 16 years old with the express purpose of disproving the Bible, uh, me at 15 who knew everything, and I uh, started reading the Bible in order to disprove it. Do you know that there's a talking donkey in the Bible? I thought that was the silliest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. Um... So we start reading through the Bible, and we're in about the book of Isaiah when we start reading the book Case for Christ. Um, I'll reference this a few more times uh, during this sermon. But um, we start reading Case for Christ, and we get through to about the book of Isaiah— And if you guys have read the book of Isaiah, you know, maybe Isaiah 53, he was crushed for our iniquities, bruised for our transgressions, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. I'm reading those things, I'm reading all these prophecies, and then I'm reading the historical facts about Jesus and about his resurrection and death and all that sort of stuff, and I'm punched in the nose with this mountain of evidence saying Jesus is who he says he is. And if Jesus was who he said he was, I had a big problem. Jesus said, uh, he said that there is a resurrection of the just and the unjust, a resurrection to eternal life or to eternal destruction. That some would be forgiven and others would be held accountable for their sins and their rebellion against God. Uh, Jesus said that this life isn't all there is, that there is heaven, there is hell, that all injustice and evil shall be answered, and those who rebel against God, as I had, rightly, justly end up where they deserve. So, I was in big trouble, and I had a big, big problem. And now, I'm confronted with this mountain of evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. So, I had to... Make a decision. And uh, right at the offset, as I said earlier, um, on the back side of your notes, there's a list of names and resources at the bottom. Uh, Gary Habermas, Lee Strobel, uh, guys like that. Those are some apologists, historians, etc. Lee Strobel is the one that wrote this bu- uh, book, Case for Christ. He just compiles all the evidence um, regarding Jesus's historicity and all that sort of stuff um, in this book in particular. Um, so, Lee Strobel, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, Michael Icona, all these historians and scholars that I got this information from. And maybe some of us here, some of us at home, uh, may be thinking, well, I'm unconvinced that Jesus is who he said he is. And maybe you've heard your whole life a whole bunch of accusations against Christianity. I've named a few already, like fairy tales, book of lies, etc. I mean a talking donkey, come on. Uh, And I'm going to name a few more accusations that I espoused and that I'd heard others raise against Christianity. Uh, That it's written by men to make themselves feel better about death or death of loved ones, that religion, especially Christianity, poisons everything that it is the cause of more war, deaths, and oppression than anything else in history, that you can't trust Christians because they're all a bunch of hypocrites, liars, and they all sin too, just like us, so what makes them any better or any different? Or you're only a Christian because you were raised in a Christian house or in a Christianized nation. And maybe some of us here, or know someone at least, we all know someone at least, uh, who maybe is less hostile towards Christianity, and they ask themselves, why do people believe God exists at all? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Can we really trust the New Testament, as his reliable history? Can a thinking person accept the idea of a man arising from the dead? Is there any evidence for these things? And even if it's all true, what difference does it make for my life today? Any answer to those questions is known as apologetics, uh, and it's not the same as apologizing. It has the same root word from the Greek apologia, which we'll see in the next verse momentarily. Apologia means to make a defense, so that's your first point on your notes. Apologetics means make to make a defense. And again, if you're new here, uh, the bulletins that we hand hand out have fill in the blank, so just make sure, you know, you might want to get that next week. It will at least keep you awake when we're preaching. First verse, 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That phrase... Uh, make a defense, the Greek word apologia, it's where apologetics and apologize comes from. Same root word, apologetics and apologize, different meaning though. So apologetics means to make a defense. Essentially, someone is calling into question the validity of the claims that we make or that we say God made. Anytime we explain why we believe what we believe— we're about any area of theology, we're doing apost- Christian apologetics. We're making a case for why we believe that it's true or defending accusations from people saying it's untrue. And there's Mormon apologists, there's Muslim apologists, there's Jehovah's Witnesses apologists, there's Catholic apologists, there's Flat Earth apologists, there's. Uh, anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine apologists, there's Republican, Democrat apologists. Anything that you advocate for, you are an apologist for. You're making a defense of that idea. So there's positive apologetics, which is making a case for something, and there's negative apologetics, which is defending against accusations or uh, dismissals from other people against the espoused view. And here's why I believe apologetics, Christian apologetics, is important. Because truth matters. Truth has bearing on not only our day-to-day, but on our eternities. If what Christianity posits is true, then it really, really matters. And here's a a silly example. Let's say I'm standing out on I-5 with my back towards, you know, I'm facing whatever way traffic is going. And you see an 18-wheeler, 60 miles an hour, pulling up on me. And you say, hey, Brandon, get out of the way. There's a truck coming. And I say, I don't believe in trucks. I don't believe in 18-wheelers. Does that make the 18-wheeler suddenly disappear? Does that mean that the 18-wheeler doesn't exist? Does that mean in a few minutes I'm not going to become roadkill? No. Just because we believe something to be true doesn't make it true. Just because we believe something to be untrue doesn't make it untrue. Things are true or false, independent of whether we believe them or not. If I say, if I wholeheartedly don't believe in gravity, but I jump off this stage head first, what's going to happen? ER trip is what's going to happen, right? Truth matters. Now, if it matters that much in our day-to-day, how much more does it matter with our eternity? if Islam were true, I'd be in a whole heap of trouble when their version of the judgment day comes. If Jehovah's Witnesses are true, I'm going to be annihilated when their version of the judgment comes. If atheism is true, and this is all that there is, we're wasting our time. All those songs we just sing, like, uh, mighty to save. God's not mighty to save if he doesn't exist, if atheism is true. If atheism's true, there is no justice. There is no right and wrong. There is no meaning, no purpose, just molecules doing what molecules do, bumping into each other. That's all murder is. That's all rape is. It's just molecules bunching, bumping into other molecules. And I believe that, and the point of this message is, when boiled down to the facts, I believe Christianity wins every time against these ideologies. So that was the introduction. I know it was kind of lengthy, but my goal for that was to introduce why talking about this is important. I say, I would say, apologetics is a necessary part to the believer's trust and faith in Jesus, and apologetics can be the stepping stone someone needs in order to put their trust in Christ, just like it was for me. If the... uh, youth pastor and the pastors of the church in california that i got saved in had they shied away from my questions about christianity i would not be here that's one less soul at least that's heaven bound i never would have become a christian if people were too scared to address the issues i brought up i never would have been saved i very likely wouldn't have been saved Because I never would have seen the truth of what they were presenting. And I have a loud mouth, so I'd probably be one of those vehement atheists, as I was earlier in life. And some of us may never have heard such accusations against Christianity. And if someone ever did bring these things up to you in a conversation, um, maybe, you know, you might freeze like a deer in the headlights. You might get angry or defensive, which is the opposite of what First Peter 3.15 says to do. Gentleness and respect. I've gotten angry. I've gotten upset at people when they gave uh, arguments against Christianity, and I wasn't kind. Or, we might walk away from the faith. And uh, this current statistic is 3 out of 5, so that's 60% of students who grow up in a Christian home, who grow up in a Christian environment just like this, just like our youth group, three out of five, 60% will have walked away from the Christian faith by the time they graduate university. Why? Because they claim that they are talked out of Christianity. And I would generally posit, not every case, not every situation, but usually what ends up happening is they are talked out of Christianity because they were never talked into Christianity. And this evangelism internship that we do, part of it we do at Chemeketa Community College. Uh, we set up a table, it's really awesome. And this is, I hear this story over and over and over again. I grew up in a Christian house. I heard these arguments. No one could answer my questions. No one would even talk to me about it. They got upset, so I left. And now I wish that I had time to talk about every branch of apologetics, every argument Um, And we simply don't. Even the argument that I'm going to present, which is the case for the resurrection, we hardly have time to dig through that in a 30-minute sermon, so we're going to blitz through that. But uh, maybe to whet your appetite to at least start to have these conversations, maybe hopefully you go home and look some of these up. I've written down uh, three of them, so your next three in the notes will start with number two. The moral argument If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. This is one of my favorite ones, especially when someone says, you know, Christianity is an immoral religion or stuff like that. I would say, okay, you know, what are you? And they'd say, well, I'm a materialist or an atheist. They believe material is all there is. There is no supernatural. And I'd say, interesting, where do you get morals as a naturalist? And usually they say, well, society makes them up. I'm like, interesting. So just like society in 1930s Germany, you know, that said it was fine to burn six million Jews, gypsies, and homosexuals. And they say, oh, well, you know, Hitler wasn't right. Well, why not? He was society. Things like that. Moral argument, really awesome argument, essentially. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Everyone knows morality exists. Therefore... God exists. Uh, William Lane Craig, Frank Turek, I hope I put their names on the uh, backside. Look up any of their arguments in regards to this. Super awesome. Again, thousands of hours on YouTube of arguments such as this. Uh, Number three, the transcendental argument. The transcendental argument. That to even levy a case against Christianity, one needs to establish how truth, logic, and reason... Are even established in their worldview before assuming those things as objective realities to try to attack Christianity. And this is another one that works really well against atheism. They would say, well, I'm a materialist. I believe that we came from the Big Bang and, you know, from galactic goop eventually to fish to you. And that's what we are. We're just molecules in motion, animals, basically. I'd say interesting. So how does someone that is an over-evolved fish know what truth, logic, or reason are? Again, I'd love to go into all this. Best uh, resource for this is to watch a debate between Greg Bonson and atheist Gordon Stein at UC Irvine. I think I included that beneath, but if not, you have a pen, so write it down. Amazing debate. Uh, basically, the Christian eviscerates the uh, atheist worldview. Really fun. Uh, Jason Lyle wrote a book called Ultimate Proof of Creation. Excellent, excellent resource. Very readable, very easy. Number four is the cosmological argument. And that posits that everything that begins to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. That one doesn't get you explicitly to Christianity, but it gets you to theism in general. Again, William Lane Craig, Braxton Hunter, Frank Turek. Really easy, accessible um, content on their YouTube pages. And again, as I said, it's impossible to scratch the surface of these three arguments. I can hardly fit them in here. But I hope that this will at least whet your appetite to get you researching into these things. It doesn't take very long. So that you will be able to answer those questions. So that you can wrestle against your own doubts and your own fears and win and so that maybe you can lead a hateful spiteful little jerk like Brandon to Jesus one day and again there's tens of thousands of hours worth of videos lectures debates on YouTube uh, you don't need to go to Bible college to understand these things so so Uh, We're going to focus on one area, the area posited by Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. And it, sorry, this is the area that Jesus used to win me over to himself. Number five, the resurrection and why the resurrection matters. The resurrection and why the resurrection matters. The resurrection of Jesus, we sang about it in at least two of the songs this morning, I noticed, um, has been called the linchpin of the Christian faith. It all, all of it rides on this question, was Jesus raised from the dead? Why does it all ride on this? Because if he made the claim, I'm going to die, be buried for three days, and then I'm going to come back, and he doesn't pull it off, what happens to Christianity? It's dead, just like Jesus. It's gone. It fades into history. No one even remembers it. You're not here, the however many billions of Christians that are in a church this morning, not happening. Even the disciples, when they thought Jesus was dead prior to the resurrection, what did they do? They went back to fishing. They're like, ah, we're done with this. You know, we'll have to wait for our next Messiah. Christianity, along with Christ, would be dead. And as Paul said, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. I'm not being edgy by saying, if Christianity is untrue, you should walk away from it. It says it in the Bible. It says it right there. Useless in vain. Those are the words that Paul uses. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, that validates, it lends powerful evidence towards the conclusion that he is who he said he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king, that he is the savior of the world. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, is that true or is it not? If he doesn't pull off his own resurrection, I'm not listening to him but if the guy says i'm going to die be buried and resurrected pulls it off i'm liable to believe what he has to say 1 corinthians 15:20 20 through 22 but in fact christ has been raised from the dead for as by a man came death by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive And in the the book, Case for Christ, uh, Lee Strobel makes it really easy on me. He makes it uh, six points that begin with the letter E. Alliteration is really a fascinating thing. I didn't know it was such a huge thing until I started going to Baptist churches. And everybody loves alliteration. Everything starts with the letter A or B or whatever. Anyways, E. Execution, empty tomb, eyewitnesses, early accounts, extra-biblical reports, and the emergence of the church. So we'll start with execution. Number six, Jesus was definitively executed. There have been some who think that Jesus fainted or faked his own death or that it wasn't him. That's what Muslims believe. Muslims believe that him and Judas swapped at the last minute. And these lines of thinking have been thoroughly discredited. Again, this is just the pamphlet version. Um, Really super helpful. You can get it for like 50 cents. Amazing read. Takes you less than an hour. The actual book itself, maybe 200 pages, but super, super worth it. You can get it for $4 on thriftbooks.com. Highly recommend it. And like I said, I can't go through all the counterpoints, all the arguments, even all the evidence for this. I'm giving you the fire hose version. Just bam, this is the info. Do with it what you will. Hopefully, my goal is that you spend some time in the next year or two years, research this a little bit. So, these lines of thinking that Jesus fainted or faked his own death, thoroughly discredited, Uh, it's basically grasping at straws, thinking up anything someone can in order to not reckon with the truth. Even atheist historians admit this point along with some of the rest, though they disagree with our conclusion about the resurrection. So atheist historian Gerd Ludeman says in his book, Resurrection of Jesus, a historical inquiry, he says that Jesus' death by crucifixion is historically indisputable due to the records and uh, extra-biblical writing and knowing how good the Romans were at killing people. Remember the flogging beforehand? Apparently that was done in order to ensure death afterwards. You don't live after the type of infection that's going to set in from that. You don't come back from that. It says that his organs—and I'm not being gruesome just to be gruesome. I'm being—I'm saying this because these are the things that happened. The Romans were really, really good at killing people. Number seven, the empty tomb. Enemies and friends alike admitted that the tomb was empty. The New Testament reports that on the first Easter morning, women found the tomb was empty, and the Roman soldiers who were guarding it were gone. Peter and John later confirmed this for themselves, and some of the strongest evidence, I think, in regards to the empty tomb is that the enemies, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, implicitly admit that the tomb was empty. Instead of refuting the claims made by the apostles, made by the disciples, and saying, nope, here's the body, battered, bruised, bloody, dead— they made a, a story as to why the body was gone, therefore conceding that the, the tomb was empty. The story that they made up was in Matthew 28, 12-13. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say the disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. This is an absurd uh, story to have make, made up, and I think that it fooled probably nobody. Why? Because Roman soldiers who were sleeping, how would they know who came and stole the body? How could they blame the disciples? Not only that, but they are one of, if not the elite fighting force of the day. You think that they don't have someone standing up watching guard? You think that uh, they couldn't fend off a bunch of scared, weak disciples? Peter ran when a girl questioned him. A little girl. This grown man ran because he was scared of what she might say. And now this guy's going to go up against the Roman army. Yeah, that makes sense. So the disciples who were blamed for this story, they didn't have the motive, the opportunity, or the wherewithal to pull this off. They're cowering in abject fear and regret over the death of their best friend and leader, running away when questioned by children. They wanted to stay hidden and out of trouble. What did they do? They went back to fishing. So now we are asked to believe that these dejected souls somehow concocted a plan to steal the body of the one who taught them never to steal, to tell lies about the one who told them never to lie, all so that they could be persecuted the rest of their lives and live really, really awful lives. Paul, I can't remember what book, I think it's the book of Acts, he says, shipwrecked, beaten with sticks. Why? What did they gain from this? Nothing in regards to this life. Well, that's not entirely true. Anyways, tangent. My apologies. So, that just doesn't work. Next one, number eight. Eyewitnesses. The disciples were willing to die for their testimony that they had seen the risen Jesus. And it is compelling for me that the disciples were all willing to die, except for John. John was boiled in oil, um, and he didn't die. The guy who actually wrote First John, Revelation, the book of John, etc., boiled in oil. Can you imagine being hold, held over a pot of boiling oil, and they say, Hey, all you have to do is recant Jesus. And he says, tough, you know, sorry, drop me, you know. All he had to do was say, Jesus isn't king, and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and he doesn't get boiled in oil. I don't know what that does to your skin. I don't know how he lived the rest of his life. It's not recorded, but I can't imagine it would have been pleasant. Not only yeah, Peter, crucified upside down, um, drowned, whipped, all sorts of horrific things, but what about the people who aren't recorded, who they you know, they don't have as big of a story as Peter or Paul. Maybe the average guy who heard a sermon from Jesus and then later decided to become a Christian. Maybe they were there in Jerusalem when the earth began to quake when he died. Maybe they were just there, um, for Passover when, uh, or Pentecost when Peter preached. And they said, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. I'm in. There's another book, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, probably the worst book ever written. Um, it's well-written, but it's the worst in the sense that uh, it's the most horrific. Um, it's not a light read. It' you know, A history of the lives, suffering, deaths of the early Christian and Protestant martyrs. And it lists hundreds and thousands of the early Christians, as well as Protestants, who were tortured, burned alive, fed to animals in the Colosseum, drowned, raped, starved, and all other sorts of horrific acts because they claimed one thing— Jesus is king, and Jesus rose from the dead. So how does someone go from someone like that, like Peter, runs away scared being, after being questioned by a little girl, abandoning Jesus and going back to fishing, how, do, how does he go from someone like that, along with the rest of the apostles, to some of the most bold men who ever lived, who defied the Roman Empire, who defied the Jewish nation, saying Jesus is king and Jesus rose from the dead. How does someone go from that to that? And I would say the simplest answer is exactly the one the evidence points towards, which is that they actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. Every other answer falls tremendously short. Number nine, early accounts. Multiple reports about Jesus' resurrection were circulating within months of the event. The creed uh, recorded at the beginning of 1 Corinthians comes from within months of the resurrection. It was penned, 1 Corinthians was probably penned around 25 years after uh, the death of Christ, but the actual creed itself, he says that he delivered at a previous time, which likely could have been his first trip to Corinth, and I'll read that for you now. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Gospel means good news. There was bad news that we were enemies of God. the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Each one of these points, you know, went through whatever. Uh, like I said earlier, I mean, there's books and books and books written about this stuff, so I hope that it piques your interest even just a little bit. I don't have time to spend. I'm definitely going over today as it is. Uh, number 10, extra-biblical reports. At least 39 extra, extra-biblical, that means outside the Bible, uh, sources report facts about Jesus's life, teachings, death, and resurrection. Historian and scholar Gary Habermas, in his book The Historical Jesus, which was written in 1988, lists through and goes through all 39 of these, and I'd highly recommend watching his lectures on YouTube or Mike Lycona's debate with, uh, atheist, or with agnostic scholar Bart Erdman on the same subject. The best thing about debates, in my opinion, um, is that it's not one-sided. It's not just me telling you, hey, believe this. It's someone offering counterpoints, and then you get to weigh which makes more sense. So I highly recommend that debate, as well as the one with uh, Gordon Stein and Greg Bonson. Number 11, emergence of the church. Within weeks, the church numbered over 3,000 individuals in the city that Jesus was crucified in. So apart from the resurrection, it would be extremely difficult to explain the beginnings of the church. Why? Because it emerged from the very city where Jesus was crucified just a few weeks earlier, and it grew from the claim that he had come back to life. If the claim were false, the disciples would have been dismissed, ridiculed as a band of crazy people. Instead, 3,000 people joined their ranks in a single afternoon. How does a world religion go from 12 people to 3,000 to within 2,000 years, billions of people? And I think for the person trying to be intellectually honest, it's going to be easier to just accept the fact, accept the answer that the evidence supports that Jesus, or that, that the tomb was empty because Jesus had risen. So, this case. For the resurrection, why does this matter? What does it matter if a Jewish leader 2,000 years ago was beat up, tortured, crucified, and all that? uh, And now his followers think that he rose from the dead. All of life's biggest questions are answered here. If Jesus is who he says he is, I have value. You have value. Life has value and meaning. I have a destiny that isn't just the dirt, that isn't just the grave to be eaten as worm food. I have a Father in heaven who says I am deeply loved and cared for. If his resurrection is true, it only makes sense that the rest of what he claimed is true. That Jesus was the substitute who took my place, dying on my behalf for my sin that I would be reconciled to God, and then, rising from the dead for my justification, that God would see me as righteous instead of unrighteous. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. If Jesus was resurrected, it seems to follow that the resurrection he promised me would soon follow. He says in the book of John, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, trusts in me, has faith in me, receives me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. If he didn't pull off his resurrection, I have no reason to believe that. If he did pull off his resurrection, I have every reason to believe that. If it's true, you have a solid, rational, rational, reasonable, logical place to ground your faith. Your trust in Christ is not because you grew up in the church or your parents told you what to believe or anything like that. Your trust, your faith, your belief, your receiving of Jesus is based on the bedrock of solid facts and God's continued faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again, God, for your grace and your mercy that that it's true that while I was sinning, you died for me. Thank you, God, that you've reconciled us to yourself, that you've brought us near um, by your own blood, that you paid the penalty that I deserve to pay. You paid the penalty for us, for our family, this church. Lord, we ask for help. We ask for wisdom. Uh, Guide us in the following days to figure out how to answer these questions. Um, hopefully that have been brought up. Uh, Lord, we love you and we need you. Amen.